So when I was in preschool, I was starting to say like, Anna's a dumb name. It's a girl name. And yeah. my mom was like, you're a girl. And I was like, no, that's a lie. Um, and so I knew it was what, it's just the classic story of like knowing at a really young age and then unlearning it um, due to the adults in your life. Hannah Valenta grew up in California in a conservative Catholic family. They joined the Navy, left home, and over time grew into their identity as a trans non-binary person. When I was 29, I was at a friend's wedding and met a, another person who was non-binary. And they were just glowing. And I was like, wait a second, is that allowed? Is, we can do that? Really? Hannah is one of hundreds of people who participated in a new survey from the Washington Post and the Kaiser Family Foundation. This is the largest non-governmental survey of transgender adults in the U.S. to rely on random sampling methods. It provides the kind of data that policymakers and advocates for transgender people say are necessary in order to really understand the needs of trans people and to support them. Bennett Nirapil covers health and science for The Post. He's been one of the reporters digging into all of this data about the experience for trans people at work, in school, and in the healthcare system. We're in a moment in the United States right now where the rights of transgender people are starting to come under scrutiny. And there's a wave of bills introduced in state legislatures to restrict gender-affirming care, who can play sports, access to bathrooms that match your gender identity. Last month, Arkansas passed a law prohibiting doctors from treating transgender youth. A bill that would ban transgender people from playing in female sports is now law in Kentucky. The Let Them Grow Act, and it would ban gender-affirming care for those under the age of 19 in Nebraska if it's passed into law. And that's the broader context here. In this climate, we're trying to highlight the voices and the perspectives of transgender people. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Friday, March 24th. Today, what it's like to be trans in America right now. Bennett shares what he learned from this massive data set and how policy and political debates don't always align with the actual experiences of trans Americans. So there have been a variety of uh, polls and surveys of trans people over the years. Not a lot of them have had that kind of randomized uh, sample that's seen as like the gold standard in polling to make sure that it's most uh, representative of the community that you're trying to poll. Yeah, like it's one thing to put out a survey and ask a bunch of questions, but we don't know necessarily if those answers are representative of the majority of people. So this this gives us that window. Right. And it can be difficult to poll a small group like transgender people. So it really requires uh, resources and focus that the Post and the Kaiser Family Foundation were able to bring. Tell me about what stood out most to you about this survey. What were the big takeaways for you and what was most revealing to you about what life is like for trans people in this country? So when we have this wave of anti-trans bills that I talked about, one of the big uh, disputes here is, aren't people better off for transitioning and seeking gender-affirming care? So this survey demonstrates that, yes, for the vast majority of trans adults, living true to their gender identity has made them happier in life in the face of all this bigotry and the hardships that they still face. 
And what did the poll reveal about how trans people consider themselves within the gender spectrum? I think there's often this uh, perception that if you're trans, you're identifying as the opposite gender as the one you were assigned at birth. So think you're raised as a girl and then you identify as a boy or you're raised as a boy and then you identify as a girl. But what our poll found is that nearly half of trans adults identify as either trans and gender nonconforming or trans and non-binary. They're rejecting the gender binary outright. And it's only about a third Hmm. that say that they identify as a trans man or a trans woman. And we found that nearly half use they, them pronouns. Yeah, that's fascinating to me because I think there is also like within the political space, there's this debate about pronouns and how commonplace it is to ask people for their pronouns or even like within certain writing conventions, whether you can use they, them pronouns when referring to people. And what you're telling us is that the poll shows that actually half of trans people do use those pronouns. Right. It's not like an obscure thing. They, them pronouns are very commonly used in this community. And Fennett, what did the poll reveal about medical procedures and treatments and the experiences of trans people there? I know you cover health, so I'm imagining that you were paying particularly close attention to this element of the survey. Right. So there's all these bills that are happening right now to target gender-affirming care. One of the key points from this uh, survey is that most transgender people have not actually had transition-related medical treatments. There's like this distinction in transgender health care about social transition versus uh, transition-related medical care. So only about 31% of people have actually used hormones, and only about 16% have had a transition-related surgery. Most commonly, what trans Americans report as uh, as their care is uh, social transitioning, dressing differently, using a different name. And Venon, can you just explain what gender affirming care is? The idea behind gender affirming care is it's healthcare that helps um, a person live a life that's um, aligned with their gender identity as opposed to one that they were assigned at birth. So, you know, when we're talking about minors, for instance, sometimes gender affirming care is as simple as giving them support and counseling uh, to use their preferred pronouns, uh, to dress and present in line with their gender identity. But oftentimes with these bills and with some of the public discourse around trans people, the fixation is on hormones or having surgery to change your genitalia. Not many people actually undergo that kind of treatment. And I should also note here that uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that people don't want that kind of medical care because there are still a lot of barriers for people who, uh, to access that kind I of see. care. And those are some of the other uh, key findings from our survey as well. Did the survey say anything about the amount of discrimination and even harassment that trans people encounter. To be very clear, like trans people have described the discrimination, the bigotry they face in their daily lives for decades. It's not a surprise that transgender adults face discrimination or harassment. This survey helps quantify that, though. Hmm. More than 6 in 10 trans adults say they sometimes or frequently feel discriminated against because of their gender identity. And a 64% majority of trans adults say they've been verbally attacked. And 25% say that they've been physically attacked. Hmm. And and what about mental health struggles? Are we seeing any evidence of that within this survey? What did the survey say about that? Trans adults are more than twice as likely to say they've experienced serious mental health problems such as depression or anxiety growing up. It's about 78% versus 32% for American adults overall. 
we also do here in the medical context of when you're raised uh, with a different gender identity than the one that you identify with, that does cause a lot of distress. It's The term is gender dysphoria. And especially when trans people are facing discrimination too, as the survey shows, it's not entirely unsurprising that we would see higher rates of depression or anxiety. After the break, we hear more from Hannah Valenta, who you heard at the top of the episode, about what accessing healthcare has been like as a trans person in this current climate. We'll be right back. So, Fennett, you cover healthcare. I want to dig in a bit more about what seeking healthcare was like for the people surveyed. Could you tell us more about Hannah, the, the person we heard from earlier in the show? Hannah Valenta was one of the people we talked to. Um, I grew up in California, and when I was 20 years old, um, joined the Navy and left and haven't been back. They're non-binary and live in Florida, but they're actually considering moving out of Florida because of the political climate there, the legislation introduced to crack down on LGBTQ people in public life, and the challenges that they run into going to the doctor in Florida. I don't feel great about, I live in the South, I don't feel great about being like, hey, I'm non-binary, here are my pronouns. Like, it's, it's not a conversation I feel like I can have because I'm already having so many issues um, just as a fat person, as female presenting, like having doctors really take me seriously. Um, so I already have like some intersections of difficulty and adding like the weird thing um, doesn't help. So what has Hannah's experience been like coming out and living as a non-binary person? For Hannah, coming out as non-binary gave them the confidence to express their gender identity with joy. I think part of what non-binary means to me is just understanding that there are going to be days where, like, the prescribed clothing or fashion is going to feel really bad. Um, And giving myself the grace to not force myself to do things that make me feel bad. The challenge that Hannah faces, though, is that they're coming up in a world where institutions don't always respect that kind of gender identity. Hannah served in the military, was raised as Catholic, and then seeks health care at the VA, where Hannah says that they don't always feel comfortable coming out as non-binary. Because of the gendered nature of VA, Hannah has to go to a woman's clinic, and then going to a woman's clinic sometimes can be a very uncomfortable experience. I know you said Hannah is considering moving out of Florida because of these issues. Fennett, what did you hear from people living in more liberal parts of the country? Is is there a big difference in the care they're finding? So what Hannah's story illustrates is that the experiences of trans life don't always fall into these uh, uh, predictable political lines. One of the more interesting poll findings was there wasn't really significant differences in finding healthcare providers who treat trans people with dignity and in states won by Donald Trump in 2020 versus states won by President Biden. 
And part of that is that challenges our notion that just because you're in a democratic area or a liberal area, it's going to be a very inclusive place for trans people. Because a lot of Americans are still struggling with their acceptance of trans people. And even in big urban cities where you might find uh, more people who are supportive, you also have more opportunities to encounter people who are bigoted or encounter people who are clueless. Bennett, what are some of the other things that people have shared with you about navigating the healthcare system? One 70-year-old trans woman I spoke to said that a doctor called her it. Mm. A non-binary person I spoke to said that while they were going through an ultrasound, the doctor was asking, why are you using they, them pronouns? One transmasculine person I spoke to moved out of Tennessee as state lawmakers there were passing a raft of bills to restrict gender-affirming care, worried that those that restrictions on care for adults would be next. Another person I spoke to for this story was Hans Dirkmat. They're transmasculine, non-binary, use they and he pronouns, and they had an experience where a nurse practitioner wouldn't give them cholesterol medicine, even though they had a history of heart disease in the family. That's because the doctor thought it might interfere with Han's ability to get pregnant. I just wanted the pill. (laughs) But for those couple of years, it was very much so you have your uterus and you can still be pregnant, get pregnant. And if you take this medication, um, it limits your opportunity to get pregnant because it could uh, give you complications. Even though I stressed several times that I don't want to have children, neither does my wife. I can imagine there are some major consequences to all of this, especially, you know, going to the doctor can already be a vulnerable thing. You know, like you're going to seek the counsel of a trusted physician. Usually you're in a situation where you want to trust your doctor. You're kind of putting your life in their hands and then you're maybe being treated this way. And I can imagine that it's more wounding than than a random person on the street saying this to you. Um, Fennett, what are the the ramifications of this sort of behavior in a healthcare setting? What, what are some of the outcomes that comes out of that? I think one of the key issues here is that it's not just about seeking gender-affirming care. It's about seeking any sort of medical hmm. care. And the concern here is that when you have negative experiences with the healthcare system, when you're tr- being treated poorly, when you don't have trust uh, with doctors, that has negative consequences for your health overall. If you're not seeking preventative care, if uh, medical conditions are going untreated, if uh, you'd end up developing uh, diseases or conditions that could have been avoided. it's not. This isn't exclusive to trans people too. This right. comes up in the context of women having their uh, pain dismissed, for example, It comes up in the context of uh, Black patients uh, having their pain dismissed. So trans people experience a lot of the similar discrimination and hostility in the healthcare system that can have uh, wide-reaching ramifications for their lives. Did anyone talk about any positive experiences that they had in healthcare settings or ones that were, you know, inspiring to them or, you know, surprised them? Yes, and I think that's really important too because... It's not all bad. Hmm. There are good doctors out there. There are good welcoming clinics out there. And some of the people I spoke to talked about how meaningful it was to go to a clinic and to be asked what your pronouns are, Uh, to go to a clinic and someone not immediately blaming their hormone therapy for whatever problems that they're undergoing, or just going to the doctor and 
their transgender identity just not being treated as a big deal. That means a lot to people. Fennett, I'm so struck by the breadth and rigor of this survey that was conducted, in part because it doesn't sound like this sort of work has been done at this point. So what does it mean to have this information, you know, shored up and verified in in this way at this moment in this country right now? The power of having a randomized uh, sample and a randomized survey is that you can really understand on a systemic uh, level what the experiences of trans people are like. And so I I don't want to like act like our poll is the first time that trans people uh, were polled ever. There has been meaningful work done and meaningful research done from uh, the think tank, the Williams Institute and federal health surveys, but more data is needed. And we hear this uh, coming out from researchers, uh, policymakers and advocates that having this kind of data statistically sound using a random sample makes it easier to have a better understanding of the needs of transgender people and to find ways to improve their lives. Thank you, Fennett. Thanks so much for having me. Fennett Narapel covers health and science for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Ariel Plotnik. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Maggie Penman. Our team includes Rena Flores, Ted Muldoon, Martine Powers, Lucy Perkins, Eliza Dennis, Alana Gordon, Ariel Plotnik, Arjun Singh, Jordan Marie Smith, Renny Svernovsky, Emma Talkoff, Sean Carter, Maggie Penman, and Renita Jablonski. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.